Then, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In these difficult times of isolation, I was really struck by the, uh, the words of our hymn earlier when you woke that Thursday morning. Uh, verse 4, 440, uh, number 445, verse 4. Uh, one in faith, in love united, all one body, you the head. When we meet, by you invited, you are with us, as you said. One with you and one with another, in a unity sublime. See in us your sister, brother, one in every place and time. One thing that's very unique about being a part of the body of Christ is being unified in a very strange and mysterious way, but in a very special and unique way as well, that we are still connected even though we are apart. So I want you to keep those things in mind as we continue to reflect on this sacrament, because in this sacrament we should not receive it unless we have unity with our brothers and sisters. We should not receive it unless we are at peace with one another because this is a meal for peace and unity as brothers and sisters. But there's another large portion of this meal that Jesus himself says that this blood is the new covenant. So what does that mean? Well, a covenant is a deal. So what deals have you made? What deals have you made with God? Have you ever stopped and prayed something along the line saying, okay, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. Sound good? Sound good. Okay, go ahead, God. Do what you got to do, and, and I'll, I'll do my thing. Don't worry about it. And some of you might know that one of my favorite TV shows is The Simpsons. And there is an episode where the, the nuclear power plant is going to uh, melt down, and they're reporting it on TV, and Homer works at the power plant, and Marge is at home watching the TV, and she sees this, all this news happening, and she immediately starts praying. And she says, God, if you prevent this disaster, I will be more charitable to people. Especially, I'll give more food to people who need food, and it'll be better than just a can of green beans. And while that's done playfully, this is how the people of the world view prayer. This is how so many people view how we go to our God, that we're just here to make deals with him. It's a very pagan practice because we're saying, God, if I do this, then you will do that. I will give a sacrifice. I will do a work so that you will do something for me. But yet, that's not what scripture tells us. What scripture tells us is this, this one tiny little unique nation it's a nation that starts with one man. It's a nation that is in many ways insignificant. But yet they look at things differently and they do things differently. And it doesn't begin with a man reaching out to the gods, but rather with God reaching out to a man. We read in the book of Genesis how the Lord connects with Abram. He leads Abram from his, his homeland to the place of the Canaanites and then tells Abraham, or Abram at this time, tells him, okay, all of this land out here, I'm going to give this to you and your descendants. What's always kind of struck me is Abraham never stops and goes, who are you and why are you doing this? But again, as we read in many places of scripture, Abraham believed. 
Abraham trusted in this God who reached out to him. And God promises to make Abram's family into a great nation, as we hear so often, as you see on the picture, as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the pebbles of sand on the beaches. But Abraham worries, as we read in Genesis. How are, how are these things going to happen? I'm an old guy and I don't have any kids. How can I start a big family when I'm old with no children? But in this Genesis 15, we see this unique interaction between God and Abram. And what I want to focus on is how when God tells Abram that he and his family are going to possess this land, Abram asks, how will I be? How will I know? And so God tells Abram to sacrifice five animals, specifically cutting the animals, except the birds of the sacrifice, in half. And then Abram sees a smoking pot and a flaming torch pass between the animals. Sounds pretty weird, right? Like a fever dream that Abram's having. But this is very important. You see, when in English, when we say to, to have a deal with someone, we say we make a deal with somebody. In Hebrew, when they talk about making a covenant, the words literally are cut a covenant. Because a covenant is a very special kind of deal between two parties. And an animal is sacrificed between the two parties, cut in half. And then the two parties pass between the sacrifice. And while this, again, sounds so gruesome and strange, it's actually meant to. Because what the parties are saying in this deal, when they pass through the sacrifice, they're saying, let this be done to me if I break the deal. If I don't keep my end of the covenant, may I be split in half. As gruesome as it is, it is a serious commitment to make a covenant. In this deal between God and Abram, they are both saying to one another, let me be cut in half if I don't keep my end of the deal. God's promise to Abram is that he will possess a land, that he will have a great nation, that he will have a large family, and they will be a blessing to all nations. And Abram just has to trust and walk with God. Sure, it seems like Abram got the easier side of the deal, but as we see this, this family walk further and further, as this covenant outlasts Abram, we see it pick back up with Moses and the people of Israel as they are led out of Egypt to God's mountain where the covenant is picked up again. Not restored, but, but it's been there the whole time. It's kind of like being reinstated. And while at the, the mountain, the people are, are led uh, the people are led out of Egypt, and they are given new laws to be God's people. You should be familiar with the Ten Commandments. But if you look at Exodus chapters 20 through 24, they're given a bunch of other laws too. Laws about altars and slaves, restitution, social justice, the Sabbath, all these festivals. And what's very interesting with all of these things, as we read in Exodus today... When Moses goes to the people and says, all right, guys, God and I had a conversation, and here's, here's the deal. Here's what we have to do. These are the rules that we have to keep to have this covenant with God. And what do the people say? Yes. They excitedly say, yes, we will do this. We will be this people. And then 
In another gruesome scene, we have animal sacrifices. We have blood put in bowls, and that blood is splashed on the elements of worship and splashed on the people. The people willingly take part in this because if a covenant is broken, death is to follow. So here we have the blood shed on the people, so they take serious this deal that they are making with God. Keep in mind, though, that at this covenant, blood is shed. And then look further, especially in our reading today from Exodus, that when the people promise to keep this covenant in Exodus 24, what do they do? But they sit and eat with God. Let's follow that along as we watch this story play out. Because what we immediately see in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Samuel, Kings, Judges especially, do these people keep the covenant? Absolutely not. It seems like they go out of their way to break the deal. One of the biggest keys of this deal is that God, the one who led them out of Egypt, would be their only God. And they said, yes. But when we turn and watch their history, we see that in their hearts, they didn't really mean it. When a covenant is broken, what follows? Death. The people experienced just an awful history But yet what is very strange about this covenant is God should have thrown them away because they've broken the covenant and it's a deal between two parties and they didn't keep their end so the covenant's broken. That's how it should be, but that's not what God does. Rather, he sticks with these rebellious people because he sees that there is a key problem. They can't keep this covenant. No matter how hard they try, they cannot keep this covenant. They cannot stop sinning. That sinning causes rebellion, and that rebellion causes them to replace God. This rebellion causes them to worship other false gods or even just do whatever they think is best for their lives. This tragic, sorrowful history continues on. But then there's this one guy who shows up on the scene, and he's calling himself the Son of God, the Son of Man. And he is professing that he is the fulfillment of many of the promises that were made to these rebellious people. This this Jesus guy, as we watch him through the gospel lessons, as we see the people of Israel gather around him, he's this unreal teacher. He opens up the law in ways which these people have never heard. He is opening up forgiveness and love and kindness and healing in ways that have never been seen. And he even raises the dead. So people are very, very likely convinced that this is just another prophet like Elijah or Elisha. Right? Those guys raised people from the dead. This just must be another one. And while he answers those questions time and time again, that he is greater than, that he is the son of God, son of man, they're still believers and doubters. But yet, to seal this even further, Jesus shares this special time with his closest followers and reveals something very important to them about himself. That he has the power and authority to fulfill 
and make new covenants. And on the night when Jesus is betrayed into the hands of lawless men, when his own friend betrays him, before all of these things happen, we have Jesus taking bread and blessing it, breaking it apart, giving it to the people at the table who are sitting with him. And he says, take and eat, that this is his body. It's strange that we don't hear any protests from the other men at the table, but regardless, Jesus continues. He takes the cup of wine and he blesses it. He passes it around and saying that this, this wine is his blood of the new covenant. The sacrifice of flesh and blood given for the forgiveness of sins. When we faithlessly look at this meal, this is just really weird. Why would anyone do this with simple food? Bread is nothing spectacular. Wine is nothing spectacular. These are very common things. And so when we faithlessly look at this meal, what everything that's happening is weird. And it makes zero sense. Why would you trust in this? But yet to those of us who are being saved, it is a meal of forgiveness. It is a meal of great unity. It brings peace and joy to our hearts. In our struggles, it gives us this strange strength. It's inexpressible, but it's there. But yet, as we are fasting from this meal, it is important that we reflect on why this meal is so important, why it's such a big deal. And the author of Hebrews does the job for us, just tells us why this is so important. He brings it all together. He tells us that all those laws given to the people of Israel have been fulfilled in Jesus. They've been completed in Jesus. All of those sacrifices that have paid for the sins of all the people, now here is the ultimate sacrifice. Paid for all sin, for all time in Jesus. The blood that was taken from the, the sacrifice as we see at, at Sinai in the book of Exodus, this blood that is sprinkled on the people, now we have the greater blood of Jesus. And he is greater because he has been given the name above all names. He has been given the power, the, the authority. And he does not wield that power and authority as some dictator, but a, as a loving and generous God. As somebody who gives us freedom by taking our place. All the blood of animals cannot pay for all of our sins, but the blood of the perfect man has already done it. The important thing to see about Jesus and this cross and the shedding of his blood is what this shedding of blood means. It's what this blood that we receive in Holy Communion means. That as we journey in this Holy Week, and indeed every week of our lives, from Holy Communion, to the garden, to the betrayal, to the arrest, to the trial, to the cross, to the tomb, to the resurrection, to the ascension, all of these things happen for our forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness of sins is given for a new promise, and a new covenant, and a new gift 
Abram, when he is given the first covenant, it's that will have a large family in a new land that will be theirs. And similarly, we are given the same promise. A large family, which we call the body of Christ. A better Canaan, where instead of a place of flowing of milk and honey, it is a place of perfection. The author of Ezekiel expresses it as a new garden of Eden with water of life flowing from God's temple. The author of Revelation describes it as a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. The beautiful new Jerusalem where all nations are gathered. This is the covenant deal. That through the shedding of the blood of Christ, this is our promised inheritance. Life eternal in perfection. And so why do we continue this meal? Why is this so important to us? Why are we doing this? Are we doing this so that every time that we do this, we're re-sacrificing Jesus and getting that forgiveness of sins? No. We are not re-sacrificing him, but we are doing this in remembrance of him. But it's more than just a remembrance because we are receiving the very body and blood of Jesus. And as emphasized by Luther and as emphasized by your pastor and as emphasized every time you receive this meal, that it is given and shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, so that you would be set free, so that you would remember the covenant that has been given to you, so that you would be that you would remember the, the family that has been promised to you and the inherited land that will be given to you. And it is in this meal that we unite with all people of all time. It has been often shared with me that we sh- uh, share in communion in a circle, in a half circle. And we're to imagine the other half of the circle being completed by all the saints who have gone before us. Because this is our holy family meal. That we are breaking bread with our brothers and our sisters, with our God. With St. Paul who has gone before. With Peter. With your family members. That this holy meal unites us all together. And it unites us to receive a promise A promised land of perfection, a land of life, a land where sin is no more, where death is no more. But yet, as we continue this holy week, we must remember and keep in mind that the forgiveness of sins does not come without the shedding of blood. Amen, brothers and sisters.